Jogging Barrett. Annie's Oak. I hadn't been back to the site at Scarsley Hall for nearly three years. Not since we abandoned it that bitter February afternoon. I try to avoid that part of town, but the other day I found myself on an errand which took me right past. So I steeled myself, parked the car, and went to take a look. The gates were padlocked just as I'd left them, but there were plenty of gaps in the hoarding where you could see in. As far as I could tell, it was completely untouched. The porter cabin we used as an office was still there, listing at an angle where it had come off its blocks. The rest of the site had been entirely taken over by brambles and weeds. There were stacks of bricks poking through here and there, and I could make out the shape of an old cement mixer, rusting away in the nettles. Some of that stuff would be worth a bob or two, but I guess the locals were too spooked to venture inside. And who can blame them, as long as the ruin of the blackened old oak still stands there? Annie's oak, with its split trunk, its great branches stabbing at the sky like a twisted claw. It still sends a shiver through me. I wish I had the guts to go in there and deal with the damn thing, but I don't. And to be honest, I don't feel I can ask anyone else to do it for me. Let me explain. When Sheffield City Council signed off on our plans for the development, the old oak tree looked like it would be the centrepiece. The brochure showed it in the middle of a beautiful green lawn, framed by the new apartment blocks on three sides. But anyone who knew anything could have told you that was bullshit. The tree was obviously in the way, and as soon as we took possession of the site, Marchin was all for taking the chainsaw to it. Marchin had been my business partner for over ten years, and he was like that. Get on with it! Get it done! That was his motto. But I knew that in this case, we'd have to play the game. There's a whole bunch of regulations around trees, and the council had the power to hit us with a serious fine. What we needed was a plausible mishap. No witnesses, no chain of command. So, late one Monday night, Marchin and I arranged to meet round the back of the site. It was absolutely freezing, and I was all muffled up in some old skiing gear, but his only concessions to the cold were a beanie hat and an old fleece which he'd left unzipped at the neck. He was grinning from ear to ear. "'What's you all done up like that for?' he said. "'This is barbecue weather in Katowice, mate!' Yeah, yeah, very funny. He loved playing the Polish hard man almost as much as he loved winding me up. As you may have gathered, I run the business side of things. He looks after the practical side, the tough stuff. That's the way he thinks of it. To him, the idea of me doing some proper work was one big joke. And I have to confess, I was outside my comfort zone with this. If we got caught, it wouldn't just be embarrassing. There would be consequences. We just needed to get through the next few minutes with nothing going wrong. Marchin switched on his head torch so we could see what we were doing. And as we made our way over to the old oak, I told myself to calm down. Because we were entirely in control of this. We had a plan. We had contingencies. And if anyone knew what he was doing, it was Marchin. We stopped at the foot of the tree, and he eased two large holdalls off his shoulders. He flashed his torch beam across the branches a couple of times, and then suddenly switched it off. 
Is everything okay? I whispered. He pushed his hat up and cupped his hands behind his ears, turning his head one way, then the other. His hearing was more acute than mine, but I sensed something too. Something moving, rustling, somewhere on the site. Marchin put a finger to his lips and stalked towards the tool store. I tucked my hands under my armpits and shivered as I waited. The tree loomed above me, a huge, gnarled old thing. Its trunk must have been a good twelve feet round, swollen and misshapen in places from the beating it had taken over the years. How long had it stood there? Hundred years, hundred and fifty, maybe more. It was a shame what we were about to do. But this was no time for being sentimental. This was business. Marchin was back after a couple of minutes. It's all right, he said. Just a cat. Let's do it. He started to unzip the holdalls. We'd brought six jerry cans of ethanol with us. His job was to douse the tree with it. Mine was to shift some of the kit a bit closer to give us a plausible cause for the fire. Marchin grabbed a ladder, climbed up into the lower branches and started to splash the ethanol around. I started dragging one of the portable generators through the mud a few yards closer to the tree. You can see our thinking. If anyone should query how the fire started, we needed to point to something simple and obvious. A mistake on the site, lights too close to the tree, someone forgot to turn the generator off, that kind of thing. I know it's not brilliant, but it didn't need to be brilliant. It just needed to be plausible enough for someone to sign off on it. And as long as we didn't go too far, they would. It was only a tree, after all. By the time I was done, Marchand had got down from the branches and was sloshing the ethanol up and down the trunk. He put the last empty can back into the holdall and then turned to me. I gave him the thumbs up. He took a box of matches out of his pocket, struck one and tossed it towards the roots. It went out mid-flight. Shit, he muttered. The beam of his torch shone against the lower branches and for a moment I could see the haze of ethanol shimmering. I shivered again. Was there another faint noise somewhere on the site? I could have sworn there was, but it was too late to mention it. I knew we had to move quickly now. The ethanol was evaporating fast. Marchin struck again, tossed the match. Same result. I was almost certain I could hear something now. A chittering, a moan, a repeated squeak. The murmur of a woman's voice, perhaps. But how far off I couldn't tell. The third time, Marchin got as close to the roots as he dared. He struck, dropped the match, and danced back. The flame stuttered, hesitated, and then licked round the base of the trunk for a moment. A second later, whoosh! The tree went off like a bomb. A great sheet of white light swept upwards. It took hold with astonishing speed, roaring over the lower boughs, through the dense matrix of twigs and branches, and in a matter of moments, up to the very top of the crown. There was a long creak, then a crack as a limb broke, snapped through the branches below and fell with a thud to the ground. There were crackles and pops as red-hot sparks started to drift our way and fell as ash all around us. I motioned to Marchin that we should drop back, but he didn't want to move. He stood there, completely gripped. In fact, the heat at the heart of the tree was becoming so intense that a great updraft had started coughing whole chunks of debris, flaming branches, twigs, scraps of bark, ten, twenty feet up into the night. Come on, march! I shouted over the din. We've got to go! And it really was a din. 
because the tree had started to emit a hissing sound as hot air expanded inside it. The hiss rose swiftly to a whistle. There was a yawing sound as another sagging bough began to fall. The whistle went up another few notes, and I had the impression that the tree was shrieking now. The tree was actually shrieking, shrieking as if in hideous pain. I tugged Marchin's sleeve. We both agreed to get out of there as soon as the fire had taken, and it was bloody important that we did. But Marchin, Marchin of all people, couldn't bring himself to budge. But the noise, the heat, the light, it was becoming intolerable. We had to get out of there. Marchin, come on, I said. Suddenly, he let out a yelp and muttered something in Polish. Then he yelped again, grabbed my hand and held it tight in his. Instinctively, I tried to shake him off, but he wouldn't let go. What the hell did he think he was doing? Look at it, he said. He was transfixed, utterly transfixed. I followed his gaze up to the very top of the crown and narrowed my eyes against the brightness. And as I did, I had the sense that something was resolving itself out of the flames. It wasn't quite a proper shape yet. It was more like a gargantuan fiery presence, towering over us, twisting up into the winter sky. Look, he repeated. His grip was now so tight it was practically breaking my fingers. But what the hell was it? I blinked a few times and squinted. Do you see? I stared deep into the flames, but I wasn't really sure that I did. When I got there the next morning, the tree was a sorry sight. Most of the crown had burnt away, and the bark around the trunk had charred into a thick black crust. Steam was rising from the remaining branches after the rain that had fallen earlier, which made it seem like a huge, dying animal. Marchin was there before me, as usual, and I was keen to get a few moments alone with him. But it wasn't to be. As I walked up the slope towards the tree, I spotted him deep in conversation with a smartly dressed young woman. He was leaning over her, with his hands clasped behind his back, and even from a distance I could see it was not going well. Oh, God, I recognised her. It was Leah Whitney, one of the local community, one of a toxic little gang who had opposed the development all the way, fought it through the planning committees, the press, the court. There had been a whole lot of spurious bollocks about open space and light and parking, and, of course, they'd made an absurd amount of fuss about the tree. And Leah Whitney had been the sharpest, the best informed, the most bloody annoying of the lot of them. She was in full flow as I approached, eyes wide, finger stabbing, and Marchin's body language told me he'd had more than enough of it. I don't think you have any comprehension of what you've done, she was saying. We warned you, whatever else, the tree has to stay. Marchin was rocking back and forward, clenching and unclenching his hands behind his back, this really wasn't his department, no. This was the kind of situation where I earned my crust. She went on. What you've done here is serious. You've disturbed something here. Do you realise that? You've unleashed something. I fixed my grin and put my best foot forward. It's all right, Marchin, I said. I'll handle this. Marchin retreated towards the office, while Leah looked me up and down and shook her head. You again, she tutted. Well, I think you've bitten off more than you can chew this time. 
She thought of herself as some kind of Sheffield royalty, the way she carried herself, the fake gravitas with which she delivered her opinions. But I'd been in this kind of situation before. I beamed at her like an old friend. Leah, thanks so much for dropping by. As you can see, there's been, well, how can I put it? Frankly, there's been a tragedy here. I got the call about half an hour ago. Don't give me that. I'm sorry, I raised a concerned eyebrow. I can assure you, Leah, I'm just as upset about this as you are. Oh, yes, devastated, I'm sure. I gave her my, oh, for God's sake, look. Come on, she cut me off. People told me you might pull something like this. I have to say I wasn't sure you'd be so stupid. Look, however good your health and safety culture, accidents happen on a building site. Yes, some are more convenient than others. She was really starting to rile me. I decided to change tack. OK, let me remind you what we're trying to do here. Oh, I haven't forgotten. Make yourself a wadload of cash. I gave her my oh-so-patient smile. Leah, let me also explain something to you. There are 10,000 people homeless in this city right now. Not this again. She raised her eyes to the heavens. I ploughed on with my spiel undeterred. There are families living four to a single room, young kids growing up in B&Bs, sick old people in damp, squalid bedsits. Oh, don't give me any more of this bullshit, she suddenly snapped. We all know what's happened here. You, or one of your goons more like, turned up last night and set fire to that tree because it stood in the way of maximising your bloody profit margin. Because rather than spend a bit more on a proper design to include it, you thought the quickest, cheapest, simplest way was to set it alight. I lost it at this point. Oh, I see, Mrs. Holier-than-thou. And since when did you become such an expert in the building trade? Or does it just so happen that you're always right about every single thing that ever pops into your stupid head? I had the impression she was somewhat nonplussed by this, but I wasn't going to give her the chance to respond. My blood was really up now. Because I tell you something. People need homes, and we're building them. People need jobs, and we're providing them. Got that? Some of us are trying to do serious, proper, meaningful work. And all you can do is waste our time with a lot of crap about a tree. Don't tell me I didn't try to warn you, she growled as she backed off. This is not the last you'll hear of it. Oh, no, believe me. Oh, no. Then she turned and stalked towards the gate. Bring it on, I called, giving two fingers to her back. I was still spitting nails when I caught up with March in 20 minutes later. But at least we had a plan for this kind of thing. If we were compromised in any way, we'd blame it on one of the guys and get rid of him before anyone could ask any questions. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't as if the police would go chasing after him. And obviously it wasn't nice. But it was business. It wasn't something to lose sleep over. I knew Marchin wouldn't be happy, though. He might have been a hard taskmaster with the guys on site, but he saw something of himself in all of them. After all, he'd been in their shoes once a smart kid from Katowice, not minding how shitty the job was, not caring how many hours he worked. Come on, Steve, he said, don't overreact. We knew someone would make a fuss, but she's not going to do anything about it. That, I'm afraid, is where you're wrong. That woman is trouble. She was the one who led the whole campaign against the development. He rubbed the back of his neck and winced, but he was reluctant. I still think it's all right, he said. We don't need to rush anything. I'm sorry, but we do. 
We need to do something and we need to do it today. Get in first, accept limited responsibility, apportion blame, move on. You remember what that woman's like. Give her half a chance and she'll drag us through the courts again. He accepted defeat with reasonable grace. All right, then. You tell me who you want to go. Well, I don't know, do I? Last in, first out. That's probably the best principle. You told me you hired a couple of Romanians last week. Fire one of them. Do they speak good English? One of them does. Well, fire the other one, then. But, Steve, look, March, we just need to cover our backs. We need to lose him. He did it that lunchtime, and he made a good fist of it, too. I ate my sandwiches at the wheel of the Defender and watched from a safe distance. As you would expect, the Romanian was not at all happy. He was one of those pretty boy young labourers, black curls tumbling out from under his hard hat and big baby brown eyes which stared wildly at Marchin, begging for his future, protesting his innocence, proclaiming his astonishment. The Romanian's mate joined in as well, pushing through the little crowd that had gathered to add his weight to the case. But Marchin, of course, was completely unmoved. He gestured at the generator, pointed to the tree. The two Romanians waved their arms about. Marchin looked grim and shrugged. The mate opened his hands and implored. Marchin shook his head. Then all of a sudden, you could tell it was getting nasty. The pretty one took a step back and snarled. At this point, March raised a finger to the guy standing just behind him. I recognised the no-neck Ukrainian he always used as an enforcer. The pretty boy Romanian was shouting now and flinging his right hand towards Marchin's face. No neck took a step forward. Marchin leaned in more aggressively. Something serious must have been said because there was a sudden flare, shouting, maybe a push. But it was the Romanian who was on the back foot, shaking his head and jabbing his finger. He obviously knew he was beaten. He turned and tugged the sleeve of his mate to say they should go. But this was interesting. His mate wasn't such a good mate as he'd thought. There was an awkward moment. They squared up and looked into each other's eyes. But the mate certainly wasn't going with him. There was another finger-jab of betrayal, and the pretty boy turned and stalked towards the gate. When he got there, he turned to hurl a few final words of abuse. Then he kicked the post with the toe of his work boot as savagely as he could. And after that, he was gone. I put my sandwich down on the dash and tapped my fingers against the other palm in silent applause. We assumed that would be the last we'd hear of him. In his kind of situation, guys move on pretty quickly. And there was plenty of work around. There was no reason to think he wouldn't have found another job by the end of the week. But when I got there next morning, I knew something was up. Marchin was waiting for me at the gate. There's something you should see, he said, and beckoned me to follow him. We walked up the slope in silence, then round the ruined tree and past the office. An unpleasant smell drifted towards us. We walked between two pallets stacked head-high with bricks and emerged at a spot just above the row of portaloos in the far corner of the site. What the hell? One portaloo had been picked up and hurled at the hoarding so hard that its panels had burst apart. Another had been upended and plunged roof down deep into the earth. A third had been stripped of its walls so only the stump of a shattered toilet remained and presumably the tanks underneath them had been ripped open because the stench of ordia, that's what it was, shit, piss and chemicals, was now utterly overwhelming 
This is sick, I said. And it's not just that, said Marchin. Come and look at this. He marched towards the site office and slammed the door open. I followed him inside. He picked up something from the desk and thrust it towards me. I found this hanging from the tree when I got here this morning. Bloody hell, I said. It was a noose. The little shit, said Marchin. He'd only been working here a few days. Why would anyone do all this? I mean, what's his problem? Have you spoken to his mate, I said. Well, he's not here, is he? Obviously. They must have done it together. Yes, of course. That made sense. The little shit wouldn't have been working alone. But the strange thing was, his mate actually did turn up about 20 minutes later. Marchin spotted him as he came through the gate and roared at him. The guy held up his hands in mock surrender and grinned. He walked towards us, muttering excuses about the tram, how it had derailed or lost power or some such rubbish. Marchin strode towards him, grabbed him by the hood of his fleece and dragged him towards the wrecked portaloos. The guy was still protesting, saying it was on the radio, we could check his story out on Twitter. Don't give me any more shit, Marchin yelled in his ear. What is the meaning of this? The guy stared at the shattered cubicles. He didn't just look scared, he looked genuinely confused. You, you and your mate, why did you do this? said Marchin. He'd let go of his hood and was glaring at him now, full in the face. For one awful moment, I thought the guy was going to cry, but he held himself together. I, I don't know, I, I don't know nothing. Of course you do, said Marchin. Who else would do this? Once again, the guy looked completely perplexed, trying to process what Marchin was saying. But I can't do this, he said after a pause. My friend Alex, he can't do this. What kind of guys you think we are? These things are heavy. He pointed at his bicep. I'm not Sylvester Stallone, right? He tried a smile, which was not returned. But he had made his point, and it was a good one. It would be quite a big ask for two young blokes to wreak such destruction. Marchand had got the point as well, but he was too wound up to show it. He glared at the guy again, and then span on his heel and made for the site office. The young Romanian and I looked at each other for a moment. What's your name? I asked him. Daniel, he said. It's okay, Daniel. I nodded to him. Get on with your work. About half an hour later, Marchand and I were sat across the desk from each other, still trying to make sense of it. Okay, it might seem improbable that the two Romanians did it, but they were still the most likely suspects. Who else was there? Leah and her NIMBY conservationists? They seemed infinitely less likely. And anyway, we dealt with them before. We knew how they operated. So were there any other candidates? Of course, we'd made enemies along the way. You didn't get as far as we had without making a few. But the nasty stuff, the bitter stuff, that was all long in the past. So who the hell would do this to us? The conversation was starting to go in circles when the no-neck Ukrainian knocked on the door. He stood on the threshold for a moment and his massive bulk seemed to tip the whole cabin slightly his way. "'What is it, Oleg?' asked Marchin. "'Everything all right?' The question was clearly redundant. His bullet head was bent forward and his giant shoulders were hunched and tense. He simmered with a sense of unconsummated violence. Something was obviously wrong. He kept his eyes fixed on the floor and spoke to Marchin in a mishmash of Polish, Ukrainian and English. They exchanged no more than four or five sentences then Marchin turned to me with a grim set to his face. Come with us, Steve, he said. I think we need to see this. Oleg led the way in a high-powered waddle as he swung his huge squat frame from side to side. We headed past the tree and stopped at the shipping container we were using as a tool store. 
Oleg nodded to a long-haired bloke in a filthy vest who was standing sentry. He moved to one side, and Oleg reached for the door handle. Prepare yourself, Marchin said to me. This is not going to be nice. He wasn't wrong. Immediately inside the door was a large black bucket, full to the brim with muddy water. The surface was broken by something, something that on closer inspection appeared to be the hind quarters of a creature, covered in wet, matted fur. What? I began. It's a cat, said Marchin. Someone drowned it. Oh, for God's sake, a cat! Why would anyone do this to a cat? Marchin shrugged. You will tell the police? asked Oleg. I shook my head. That was the last thing we needed. Good. Under the current circumstances, it was strangely reassuring to have Oleg's approval. You want? I stay here tonight, he offered. And for the first time, he looked at me directly. He was up for this, I could tell. A bit of sanctioned violence was right up his street. And obviously, it was a good idea. If whoever did this was stupid enough to return, an encounter with Oleg should be enough to see them off. Okay, I said, why not? We can pay you double time. Marchin shot me a glance. We'll pay you triple, I corrected. I basked in Oleg's approval for the second time in as many minutes. If I see them, he said, and a malicious grin spread across his face. Then he smashed his right fist into his opposite palm and twisted it with obvious relish. I had no regrets about my generosity. Oleg would have been cheap at four times the price. The rest of the day passed off without incident. I wandered round the site for an hour but couldn't find anything else amiss. I went to look for Daniel, the Romanian, but discovered he had knocked off early. I wasn't surprised. But I was uneasy. I could make no sense of what was happening. It was beyond nasty, beyond spiteful. It was disproportionate, and that worried me. I was also getting spooked by the damn tree. Wherever I went, I had the sense that its charred hulk was looking down on me. There was something sullen and malevolent in its ruin. I was keen to get it down and move it off the site. But Marchin counselled against anything too hasty. Some of the guys are getting nervous, he said. Too many weird things happening. Let everyone get back to their routine. We don't want any more incidents. Just let things settle, and we'll sort it in the morning. If only. By the time morning came, the chaos had resumed. I was woken by a call from Marchin just after 4am. We need to get to the site, Steve, he said. It sounds like Oleg's in trouble. I pulled a tracksuit over my pyjamas, grabbed a puffer coat against the cold, and jumped into the Defender. Marchin had forwarded me a video from Oleg's phone, which I tried to watch as I drove through the empty streets. I'd been through it three times by the time I got there, and I still had no idea what it was showing. The whole thing was absurdly jerky, like he'd shot it while blundering around and falling over. It was mostly just darkness, pricked by tiny points of light. Mud, maybe. A light somewhere perhaps in the sky? A dark form, more lights, a silhouette. The tree, perhaps? And through the whole thing, Oleg was muttering and cursing, and sometimes screaming in Ukrainian. And weirdly, at a couple of points, I thought I heard a woman's voice. But I could be wrong about that. The sound quality was terrible. I pulled into my normal spot, and could see Marchin's familiar hunched figure up by the tree in the grey pre-dawn light. As I trudged up the slope, he threw his arms wide and gave me a what-the-hell look. Pieces of metal and bits of machinery were strewn all over the ground. At first I wasn't sure what they were, 
There were twisted shards of panel, chunks of steel, plastic mouldings torn in half, tangles of wire, something that looked like a carburettor. And then I noticed the Honda logo on one of the panels, and the penny dropped. It was the generator, wasn't it? The one I dragged towards the tree on Monday night. It had been totally trashed. My God! Ripped apart, smashed to smithereens. Someone must have been angry. The wreckage was unbelievable. There's a mechanical digger just over there, said Marchin. Same story. Torn to pieces like a little kid's toy. Who knows what else? I haven't had a chance to check. What are we paying Oleg triple time for, I said. I don't think there was anything he could have done, said Marchin. This wasn't the Romanians. And of course he was right. Because these were serious pieces of equipment. The force needed to pull them apart like that was mind-blowing. It was certainly well beyond the capabilities of a couple of soft young blokes. I followed Marchin back towards the office, which is where he'd left Oleg. He was slumped in the chair behind the desk, an empty bottle of Stolich in his hand. When he saw Marchin, he leant towards him and tried to say something. Nothing came. He tried to prop his chin on his hand and failed. He tried again and failed again. He's as pissed as a fart, I said. Marchin got the site up and running as best he could, and then we sat down in the office and tried to work out what the hell was going on. He hadn't managed to get any sense out of Oleg, who was sleeping off his hangover in the back of someone's van. But it was obvious that whatever was happening had some connection to the fire on Monday night, more specifically to whatever it was that Marchin had seen in the flames. But I knew I couldn't ask him about it directly. He was too much the tough guy to admit the slightest hint of weakness, to remind him of a moment when he'd yelped and held my hand, that was out of the question. Having said that, though, if there was something I needed to know, he'd usually find his own way of telling me. And to his credit, he did. I think we should speak to that woman, he said. Which woman? You know, the campaigner. There was something she said to me the other morning. Oh, yeah? What? She said, you've unleashed something. And what do you think she meant by that? I think we should ask her. Okay, I said. Well, she shouldn't be hard to find. I got Leah Whitney's phone number up on the screen. I'll give her a ring, I said. No, said Marchin. I think we should actually go and see her. That made me sit up. Marchin had never been one for paying social calls. All right, I said. Well, I've got her address here too. The Coach House, Scarsley Hall Road. The houses in Scarsley Hall Road were the ones that backed directly onto our site. That made sense, of course. That was why Leah was so passionately opposed to us. Mostly they were undersized little three-bedroom affairs of the kind they built in the 1980s. But the coach house was from an entirely different era. Tucked behind a high privet hedge, it was an elegant two-storey building of dark red Victorian brick with high Dutch gables at either end. As we crunched across its gravel forecourt, even Marchin was impressed, I could tell. It had been years since I'd knocked on someone's door uninvited, but Marchin insisted we have the element of surprise. He didn't want to give Leah time to prepare. But unfortunately, it wasn't Leah who opened the door. It was an elderly woman, smartly dressed in a tweed skirt and dark green polo neck. Her spectacles hung from a cord around her neck. Yes, she said, looking us up and down dubiously. Hello, uh, we were hoping to talk to Leah, Leah Whitney. She's not back yet. Ah, well, do you know when she might be home? 
"'You're the builders, I suppose,' she said. "'Yes, uh, we wanted to—' "'It's all right. I know why you're here.' She opened the door wider and motioned for us to step inside. "'I'm sorry, are you Mrs. Whitney?' I asked. "'Correct,' she said, and led the way down the hall. The whole place was gloomy and extremely old-fashioned, stuffed with huge pieces of dark wooden furniture and pictures much too big for the spaces on the wall. Marchin paused in front of a large engraving that hung at the foot of the stairs. "'Sorry,' he said. "'Scarsley Hall. Is that what used to be here?' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Whitney, crisply. "'Of course, that was in its heyday in the 1890s.' The engraving showed a handsome, double-fronted house, with large French windows giving onto a terrace, which was raised above a perfectly manicured sloping lawn. "'What was it?' asked Marchin. "'A school or something?' "'No.' My great-grandfather made a very great deal of money in the Victorian era. Sheffield Steel. He owned one of the biggest mills in the Don Valley. And so he had this place built for him and his family. It would have been right on the edge of the city back then, with glorious views out to the peaks. So you're saying it was a family home, said Marchin. Your family home? Well, yes. Not that I ever lived there myself. By the time I came along, we could no longer afford to keep it up. My father had already moved us all here, into the coach house but I do remember it, as a derelict shell up there on the ridge, windows all smashed, roof gone, covered in graffiti. They pulled it down when I was a teenager in the 1970s. Marchin nodded. The only thing that's left now is the tree you can see there in the foreground. She pointed to the large oak in the middle of the lawn. Or shall I say, the only thing that was left, the only thing that was left before your efforts on Monday night. "'Excuse me, Mrs. Whitney,' I started, "'but what happened on Monday?' "'She silenced me with a flick of her hand. "'Please don't continue,' she said. "'I have too few years left to waste my time on your nonsense.' "'Then she walked briskly down the corridor, "'opened the door at the end, and ushered us into the living room. "'Marchin and I sat awkwardly, side by side on the edge of the sofa, "'hands on knees, while Mrs. Whitney sat back in a well-worn armchair "'and surveyed us for a moment.' She made a little effort to contain her dislike, but nevertheless began, My daughter Leah is a romantic, and in many ways a meddlesome fool. I disagree with her on many points. I don't believe we should hold back progress. People need places to live, and the apartment blocks you're building at the bottom of my garden serve a useful purpose. I should like you to know that although I did oppose them, it was not on selfish or aesthetic grounds. There were certain things that were drilled into me as a child— and one of the most important was that the oak tree was sacrosanct. It was not to be touched. Never. Not under any circumstances. And in case you're thinking this was just some eccentric family tradition, let me tell you immediately that was not the case. When I was growing up, local people would shun the whole area. Children wouldn't come within 50 yards except for a dare. Even after the hall was demolished and the other houses on the road were built, there was no question but that the oak and its surroundings would be left. And it was with good reason. She paused. Marchin and I looked at her. Neither of us knew what to say. She cleared her throat and continued. Many stories have been told to account for it. In most aspects, I'm sure they're fanciful. But there is a kernel to them all. It is not a nice story, and it doesn't show my family in a good light. However, I will share it with you. My grandfather was the son of the man who built Scarsley, and he was not a pleasant individual. The sons of very wealthy self-made men often go to the bad, or so I've been told, 
and my grandfather was no exception. He returned from the trenches of the First World War, profoundly damaged by the experience. Within a matter of months, both his parents were dead, carried off by the Spanish flu. He found himself in command of a large household and a thriving business. He was in no fit state to manage either. He squandered his wealth, he drank, he abused his staff, and in particular, he preyed upon the women, the cooks, the maids, the tweenies. I'm sorry, Marchin interrupted. Tweenies? Tweenies? They were the most junior of all the staff, the girls with no set role who moved between the floors of the house as required. But one of them had ambitions far above her station. Most people agree she was called Annie, and she was by all accounts a beauty, a raven-haired, strident Yorkshire lass with an iron will and a determination not to let her looks go to waste. At the time it would have been an absurd idea, but she had set her sights on my grandfather. She figured she could handle him, bend him to her charms, and make herself the mistress of Scarsley Hall, and perhaps she could have done if she hadn't fallen pregnant by him first. Of course, the baby didn't fit in with her plans at all. In those days, an unmarried pregnancy meant instant dismissal from service. Annie, however, was not to be thwarted. She concealed her condition as best she could and gave birth to the baby in the early hours one morning, alone in an outhouse they used as a laundry room. She didn't allow herself to consider her next course of action. She already knew exactly what she would do. The child had scarcely taken its first breath when she plunged it head first into a bucket of water and held it there. Oh, my God, whispered Marchin. But unluckily for her, one of the other maids stumbled upon her in the act. She came into the room, stared in horror for a moment, then dropped her basket, slammed the door and turned the key in the lock. Annie shouted and pounded furiously to be let out while the maid ran to wake the rest of the household. Fifteen minutes later, the men of the house, my grandfather, the butler, the driver and the gardener, were all gathered outside the door. My grandfather gave the signal and the door was unlocked. They were met by a scene of utter devastation. The airing racks had been torn from the ceiling, the sinks had been shattered, the cabinets smashed. They were stunned by the scale of the destruction. Pipes had been wrenched from the wall, tin baths twisted out of shape, plaster cracked, windows broken. It was as if a superhuman force had been unleashed. And then, of course, there was the terrible sight of the tiny form, still and silent in the bucket. But there was no sign of Annie at all. For the rest of the day, the whole household searched the grounds and the surrounding area, but it appeared that Annie had got away. However, that night, the maid who had sounded the alarm was still distraught and unable to sleep and so in the early hours she crept downstairs and went out onto the terrace to get some fresh air. She leant over the balustrade and was gazing across the lawn to the hills beyond when she noticed something strange in the oak tree. She went down to take a closer look and found Annie's body swinging gently from a noose. For the second time in twenty-four hours she ran, screaming into the house, my grandfather and the others made their way down to the lawn as fast as they could, but by the time they got there, although the noose was still dangling, Annie's body had gone. No one has ever been able to explain it. There have been theories, of course, but none could ever be proved. Now, I am not a great one for old wives' tales, but I do believe that certain superstitions persist 
for a reason. You won't find a single person round here who believes that Annie is at peace. Some claim to have heard her, some to have seen her, but I know for certain that no one would have dreamt of touching her oak. I have no idea what will happen next, but something will. What you did on Monday night was astonishingly foolish. I believe she will have her revenge on you. I would like to say I've warned you, but I don't see how you can avoid the consequences. No, you haven't heard the last of this. She paused. She withdrew into herself. We sat for a few moments in the gloom. It had gone dark outside during the tale, and no one had thought to switch the lights on. "'I'm sorry I didn't offer you tea, gentlemen,' said Mrs. Whitney, and then she showed us out into the night. Marchin and I stood on the forecourt outside. I rubbed my forehead and looked up at the first stars, while Marchin lit a cigarette. "'I'm sorry, March, but I have to ask you,' I said. "'What was it that you saw on Monday night?' You know, in the flames. It was her. The wind roared in from the peaks that night. It sighed and whistled around the house, flinging little rattles of rain against my bedroom window. I slept badly, my thoughts returning again and again to Monday night. Over and over I watched the flames rise from the crown of the tree. I willed them to resolve into a shape, a face, the figure of a young woman. I willed myself to see what Marchin had seen. But neither in my dreams nor in my waking mind could I make out quite what was there. I tossed and turned through the early hours and then gave up. I got out of bed and decided to have an early start. The streets were eerily quiet as I drove to the site. The radio was saying they'd had it particularly bad up in the hills, and a number of roads were closed. But even here in the city, the wind had toppled trees and brought slates down, torn the roofs from garden sheds. I pulled in just a few moments after marching. We got down from our vehicles and slammed our doors at almost exactly the same time. The air had a rinsed metallic feel, as it often does after a storm. The pair of us walked up the slope in silence, apprehensive about what we would discover. We could see immediately that the site office was listing to one side like a sinking ship. The wind had obviously got underneath it and lifted it off its blocks. But that wouldn't take long to put right. Some of the hoardings at the back had blown down. A couple of tarps had been ripped off the skips. But there was no sign of anything more dramatic than that. I'd expected much worse. The tree had taken a pounding, though. Some more branches had been snapped off and thrown towards the back fence. The huge bow on the left, instead of clawing the sky, now sagged at right angles. And when we got closer, we could see that as it slumped, it had taken the top part of the trunk with it, so that a split had opened up, running to almost halfway down. That's odd, said Marchin. Something had caught his attention, and he picked up his pace. He got to within a few yards of the tree and froze. What is it, March? I caught up a second or two later, but he was already shaking. He extended a finger towards the hollow that had been revealed within the trunk. Two empty eye sockets looked back at us. Oh, my God, said Marchin quietly. It was a skull. Smoke blackened on one side, off-white on the other. Oh, my God. The front teeth were all intact, and the lower jaw 
hung slightly open, giving the impression it was just about to say something. And astonishingly, there were a few strands of long, dark hair drooping from the crown, frizzed at the ends. I took a step closer myself and could see there were neck vertebrae too, and presumably a skeleton attached, concealed within the hollow. Marchin took another couple of steps towards it and bent forward, so his eyeline was on the same level. It's her, he whispered. It's her. Then he drew his breath in sharply. He took a step backwards, turned and sprinted to his car. He had to start it three times in his panic to escape, but I didn't turn round. There was a frantic revving of the engine as he reversed and then roared off. A silence fell over the site and a faint, acrid whiff of burnt clutch drifted across. But I didn't move. I couldn't. I stood in front of her, mesmerised. There was something coquettish about the slight angle of her head, something insolent about the way she gazed so steadily through the rip in the bark. I half-closed my eyes and tried to conjure the features of her face, a pert nose, perhaps, high cheekbones, that strong, determined Yorkshire jaw. But still the vision wouldn't quite resolve itself. I simply couldn't see what Marchin saw. But there was no doubt in my mind. It was her. It was Annie. Eventually I gathered myself, turned my back on her, and walked slowly towards the gate. I knew there was no point contacting Marchin. I would need to do this by myself. And I would need to be practical. I manoeuvred the defender out onto the pavement and parked it across the entrance. Then I locked the gate and made a call to the South Yorkshire police. As the guys started arriving for work, I muttered something about storm damage and told them to come back at half ten. As they didn't have anywhere else to go, most of them just sat on the curb and smoked. The police finally turned up just before eleven and then took a huge amount of time fussing over tapes and forensics and a tent and whatever else they do. By lunchtime, the guys on the street were getting mutinous, and so eventually I said to the sergeant, Look, we all know she's been dead for about a hundred years, and I am trying to run a business here. He looked at me in that solemn way they learn at cadet college. I'm not sure you've got that right, sir, he said. We're not certain yet, but it appears it is a young woman. Well, yes, of course it is and it seems she may well have died within the last few days. What? Yes, obviously it will all become clearer. I'm sorry, what did you say? It seems she may well have died within the last few days. That's ridiculous. That's what the forensics are telling us. So if the destruction of the tree was arson, as has been reported, we may well be looking at a charge of murder here or manslaughter at the very least. I gawped at him. Bloody hell, my mind was racing. What to do? Shit, what were we going to do? I suppose there was a chance we could stand up one of the Romanians for it. But if we couldn't, well, if we couldn't, there was nothing else for it, was there? Marchin would have to swing for this one. Annie's Oak was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz. Oh.